Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. I've watched a lot of Scott Hamilton lately. I'm sorry. And... I don't know if I want to start with sports or life, but I would, do you want to cover it all? And I, I think- Wow, how much time do we have? Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> it's kind of complex. But part of the reason that I, I wanted to have you here today on, on Retire Sooner podcast is that it's been a- adversity-filled couple of years. Oh, for, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For a lot of people. Yeah. And, and I, I've- you know, it's it's funny because people just sort of like they just went into identity stuff, right? They went into I'm this or I'm that and everybody through social media and everything else has to identify as this or that. And then they all kind of hunker in their corners and then they friendships are lost and like lifelong friendships. I you know, I, I I'm looking at this going, What happened? You know, so many people that I I really love just sort of went away. And it was really funny that a friend I've I've known for thirty eight years, we haven't spoken since around COVID, the beginning of COVID. And it was like, I miss this guy. He's my, one of my favorite friends ever. And I was in Detroit with my son for a hockey tournament and my phone rang and it was him. And it was like, man, we haven't talked in so long and I've missed you. And what are you doing? And I go, well, I'm in Detroit with Max doing a golf tournament, I mean, a hockey tournament. And he goes, I'm in Monroe doing a show tonight. What kind of show? He's a comedian. Comedian. So we went to a show. Max oh, and cool. I, and we totally reconnected. And it was like, like it's all this political stuff and all this other stuff. So it was, it like, was COVID ah. and then politics. And it's all this stuff that COVID up. does, right? Yeah. You know, COVID said, if you're this or you're that, or you got to do this, you got to do that. And it was very divisive. Yeah, More it than it was, like, you know, things like that you would think would bring a community together to say, how can we help each other and how can we support each other? That one felt really different because it became yeah. so political. But, um, you know, I think we're, past the worst of it now, and we can get back to life. You know, I think what people know about you, if you're just tuning in to this episode, is the tip, kind of the tip of the iceberg. It's like, oh, I know Scott Hamilton from the Olympics, and he won a gold medal, and I, he's been a commentator on mm-hmm. all the Olymp- so many Olympics for figure skating. And maybe he, I heard he went through some tough stuff, <laughs> yeah. but that is just like the very, that is the the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. when, it, when it comes to your life and all of the things that you've overcome. And the, and I wanted to find someone with a message to speak to our audience, because I think we're in, in a period of time where we've gone through two and a half, three years of a pandemic. And then we've gone through the last two years of stock market hasn't been great. The bond market has been really bad. The, we, we, 
politics is in shambles in mm-hmm. the United States. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, and, we, and, we're going to talk about religion and politics today, so we're going to be... Yeah. <laughs> Good. But, but it, <laughs> people feel as though... Two wars. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of two wars still. Mm-hmm. Uh, Middle East, Ukraine, Russia. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a... Fra- it feels like a fragile time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to remind people and show people... He, someone that has been through just great adversity mm-hmm. and is still sh- shining wow. on the other side. Yeah. I, I know you, you opted for no makeup today. Yeah. So. I opted for no makeup today. Well, I'll be, you know, I'll be shining like, with sweat. You know, my, my, my health issues are a prop. Well, what, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But start with that though, because you started, <laughs> yeah, you I were started. born into health issues. Yeah. It was really wild. Cause I was always little. I was um, adopted at six weeks of age. I was an unintended unwanted uh, baby, um, but chosen by um, two school teachers from Northwestern Ohio, originally from the Boston area. And my dad was a PhD professor of biology. My mom was teaching second grade, um, but spent, you know, our whole families in education. So I get adopted into this family. And, in Ohio. Um, in Ohio, Bowling Green, Ohio, Isaac Azumba. It's the weirdest chant, like, bite song in the all of... Oh, for Bowling yeah, Green. Yeah. Yeah. Isaac Azumba, Zumba. <laughs> anyway, um, so... I, you know, at age four, they realized that I was always tiny, but I was really not growing and I wasn't developing properly. And so for the next four years, you know, between Bowling Green and Toledo and Ann Arbor and Boston, I was in hospitals trying to get to the source of my issue. They took me off flour, sugar, dairy, all this stuff, just try to figure out if I had food allergies or um, whatever. And and I um, finally, after, you know, all these misdiagnoses or lack of diagnosis or whatever these things, I ended up in Boston. I had every symptom of a disease called Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome, which is a celiac disease that prevents kids from growing and developing. Schwachmann-Diamond. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Schwachmann himself was looking after me. So I think, oh, finally, we have a solution to, to my issues and we'll have a way forward. And he said, I've exhausted every test. He doesn't have it. He has every symptom, but he doesn't have the disease. So he sent us home with instructions that we need to um, just live a normal life and just see what happens. Maybe I'll grow out of this thing, maybe uh-huh. whatever. But and not it, a lot of hope either. <clears throat> no, no, there wasn't any, like, there was no path forward. It was just like, go home and see what happens. That uh-huh. was kind of like his medical advice. <laughs> so after four <laughs> years of being in and out of hospitals, to leave without any sort of, um, you know, identity to whatever this has been. It just was sort of like exhausting and shattering for my parents. And so our family physician who lived down like three doors down the street from us, he came and he had a one man intervention to my parents. And he just said, you need a morning to recharge your batteries. This has been a physically, emotionally, um, spiritually, like exhausting for you guys. Financially, it's been a disaster and you need to show yourselves up. You know, and you, I mean, you really you had a feeding tube. Yeah, that was at the, yeah, that was toward the end. That was because I had um, they they put me on a supplement because they felt like that was the only thing keeping me alive, <laughs> and so it was it was absolutely terrible. And I wouldn't drink anymore. And I would I would tell my mom I'm going into the the bathroom to drink this because in case I gag, and I would just dump it out in the <laughs> sink or the toilet. And then I you know they go you need to drink this, and it's like. Mm-mm. No, I'm not going to. So, like making you drink this like spinach chalk? No, no, it was chalk. It was not even like chocolate or vanilla chalk. It was just chalk, chalk, chalk. So, um, our family physician came and goes, I think I have a a compromise because you need this supplement and uh, you're not going to drink it. I know you're not going to drink it. So, um, they put a tube up my nose down my esophagus and 
they would feed it to me that way. So on the day of the intervention, he said, um, you need a morning off and here's how you're going to do it. Brand new facility at Bowling Green State University. It's an ice arena where they teach children how to skate from eight to noon every Saturday. So um, that's what he should do. And so, you know, is it safe? Yeah. Lots of kids. Yeah. So perfect. So I walk into this learn to skate with about 120 well kids and it's like, whoa, this is awesome. And after several weeks, I realized I could skate as well as the well kids. And then um, several weeks more, I realized I could skate as well as the best athletes in my grade. And for the very first time in my life, I had self-esteem because I was always the shortest one, the weakest one, the last one chosen, all those kind of cliches. But that was kind of how I lived. And now all of a sudden it was like, I can do something as well as the best athletes in my grade. Okay, I'm a rink rat. That's all uh -huh. I'm going to do from now on. And this has started around age eight or nine? Yeah, it was around, yeah, nine. Yeah, at nine. So I was late to the game, but my my build and my um, physicality and my personality were absolutely perfect for skating. For skating. Yeah. And skating then made you, almost gave you an identity and gave you some health, didn't it? Yeah, didn't all it of a sudden. Of it's, it, it happened pretty quick. And... Um, I, I really don't know why or how, but um, they all of a sudden I started to grow and I started to develop muscle and I started developing. And my parents are like, okay, we found something that works. You're a skater. Keep skating, yeah. yeah. And so I went through a lot of the bullying, you know, of being a figure skater in a small town and all the other boys were playing hockey. And so I told my mom, I'm going to play hockey. She goes, you're a figure skater. I go, no, I'm going to figure skate, but I want to play hockey. And she said, well, no, you're too small. And I go, I can skate better than all of them. Let That's just, true. You could. Let me, let, me, let me play hockey. So I, I ended up playing for, um, it, you, I could say three seasons. or I So could, you did play ice hockey. Yeah. yeah. And, or two neck braces, whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever direction you want to go. And it was there that I realized, you know, I'm 12 years old. I'm never going to be a hockey player. It's really too much. You were just much, too, too small. Too small. And I was just getting wrecked because they allowed checking like from day one. Yeah, you got into yeah. this thing. So... Um, I just went all into figure skating. And at that time, most of my hockey player friends, A, I, I earned their respect. Because you then, can skate. They knew, like, skate. hey, this but, dude can skate. But it was even better than that. They realized that I had more access to girls than they ever would. And so <laughs> all of a sudden, it was like, hey, buddy. And it was like, oh, okay, here we go. So the skating thing, I was good regionally. I was okay sectionally. Because each, you know, the nation is, is chopped into nine different regions, right? For, for figure skating. Figure skating. Yeah. And three regions feed a section. And then the three sections feed the nationals, right? So it goes, it goes nine, three, one, right? Okay. So um, I didn't make it to nationals my first year in novice because um, that's the entry level event for uh, figure skating for, you know, to make it to the nationals, you have to be on the novice level. And so... Uh, <laughs> I was third in the figures and third in the freestyle. Third. Okay. What and age are we talking here? We're talking. 12? Yeah, I was 12. So I, you know, you'd think if I was third in the freestyle and third in the figures that I'd go, I'd be third overall. Well, I was fourth. Okay. So you didn't make it. <laughs> I didn't make it. So we made a change. I went to Illinois to train with. So Jeff. by the way, so you weren't like a prodigy right out of the gate. No, I was I was good, and I loved the comedians. I always thought if I could be an ice show comedian someday, that'd be the greatest gig in the world. I could, yeah. I could have a blast and make people laugh and do all those things. And all my heroes were the ice show comedians. You know, it was like Freddie Trankler from the Ice Capades and Terry Head and 
Um, so you yeah. you really liked the oh, Kevin like you Bob, loved the ice yeah, capades Tom earlier. Yeah. I liked all the ice show comedians. I thought they were just they ruled the world. And so I thought I want to be an ice show comedian. Yeah. And uh, what was really fun was um, as I got into my skating, I realized that being funny was kind of a superpower. Mm-hmm. If you could make people laugh or you could do things within your competitive programs, then you're introducing an element that's kind of missing because it's yeah, very formal, very serious, yeah. very formal, very structured. And then, you know, to kind of cut it up a little bit in the middle is, oh, that'd be a lot of fun. So we did that, especially toward the end. I did that in every one of my programs. But um, going through, like my first year at Nationals, um, it was Janet Lynn, who was the most popular woman athlete in the world at that time. She was competing in her last U.S. Nationals. So they put the Novice Boys event as the event right before that event. So the most popular woman athlete in the world in her last Nationals Standing room only in um, an arena in Minneapolis. How many people? 17,500. That's a lot. Yeah, and I had to step in front of 17,500 people. And um, I ended up falling five times in my little three-minute program. Oh, and I came in dead last, <laughs> you know. So um, I went back. That was ninth out of nine. Next year, I went back, figuring I'm going to show them what I'm made of. I was ninth out of ten. And then we figured, I'll go up to junior um, so I went up to the junior level thinking, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm last place guy. You know? Again. So this is like age 14. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going up as, you know, it's yeah. like 13, 14. Now I'm 15. Um, yeah, I guess I was 16, uh, going into my first year in junior. And, uh, so you're still progressing, but you, again, you're not like, oh, I'm last place guy. I'm, yeah. I'm, they're not like, oh, this is a, this is, this no. guy's going to the Olympics. No, no. Yeah. my mom thought I was going to the Olympics, yeah. but I was you like, you thought oh. you were going to ice show comedy. Yeah. I know. I, I was just competing because it was a means to an end and it kept me in skating. Cause that was the only thing you could do back then, except for the ice shows, like the club ice shows and things like that. So I did, I, you know, I did what I was told, um, nothing more. And that's significant because, I would do as I was told and nothing more, which means that I wasn't getting the most out of each training session. So I was definitely participating in me being last place guy because there were other guys that were working harder that had better work ethic who had, you know, sort of this driving ambition to win, win, win. For me, it was as much a social activity as it was. So you were, having, you were kind of just having fun. I was having fun and, and I would show up, but I wasn't showing up with the intention of like mm. rocking it, right? Yeah. So... I go into the junior level and um, I go to nationals and I, and my mom said I had to make it to nationals that year because they were in um, Oakland, California. And she wanted, she to, wanted go to, to go to Cali. She wanted to go to San Francisco and ride the cable cars and do yeah. all that. It, it was a family vacation. So uh, especially with where I was competitively, like I wasn't going there to, it was so, a family vacation. Yeah. So um, I ended up coming in seventh. Uh, so the two guys that I beat were mortified, I'm sure. Like, <laughs> Hamilton beat you? Really? Ooh, that's rough. Dude, you must be so embarrassed. I, that's going to light a fire under your tail. If he can beat you, you got to get better. So um, it was right after that that um, my mom uh, said family meeting. And it was like, okay, family meeting. We never had a family meeting before. And in that, she was very cheerful, very upbeat. She said, I've just come from the doctor and I've been diagnosed with a disease called cancer. And we're gonna have to make a few changes around here. And then I was um, becoming the next year, I'd be a senior in high school. And she just said, and you, and I go, yes, ma'am. And she said, "Um, we're basically bankrupt. We put everything into your skating. We've got really not much left. 
but we're going to get you through your last competitive season this year. And then next year you'll go to college because we're both professors now. So they the made an okay living, but it, it was, it was expensive. A yeah. all those medical years with you B traveling. Yeah. It so, was, it just drained them. It yeah. just really drained them. So I went back to Illinois to train for my season and my main coach had retired. So a new coach came in and he was pretty um, structured. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way of saying he was. So he was a he was a hard. He ass. was a totalitarian dictator. Okay. So I had to succumb, or or suffer. So I just I just did whatever he told me to do, and I I worked a little harder, and I show up a little bit better, and I would had more intention, and I went to the nationals that year, and it was going to be my last competition ever. And about two weeks before, I'd landed my first triple, and so my coach said, "What do we got to lose? We'll just put it in the program." You <laughs> know, okay, we'll put it in the program. And so um, my mom arrived, it was in Colorado Springs, and she had had her left breast removed and mostly inside of her left arm to Mm. the cancer. And then she was wearing a wig because she lost all of her hair to chemo, but she had the biggest smile on her face. And I was like, are you okay? And she goes, I'm actually great. And I thought maybe it was the drugs they Uh put her on or something. (laughs) I had no idea. So she was wearing a sling so people wouldn't bump into her. And she was still, I could tell she was pretty uncomfortable. And I went out to do my long program and I was in a better position than I'd been in the past because I'd actually worked harder because the coach scared me to death. And I was going out for warm up, and he grabbed the back of my pants and he pulled me off the ice. And I was like, yes, sir. And he said, don't warm up your triple sow cow. And I said, why? And he said, because we don't really want to know if it's there or not. So for our audience, what is a triple sow cow? So you go backwards, um, you're on, you're gliding on your left Left, left foot, okay. just put you know, put weight on the inside of your foot. That's your inside edge. So you're going backwards on your left inside edge, and then you're rotating um, counterclockwise, three revolutions, and landing backwards on your right foot. Okay. So Sounds easy. It's um, Yeah, it's not easy. Um, but so... I By the way, were people doing triples back then? Yeah, there were a lot of really good talented skaters, like really yeah. talented skaters that year, especially because that guys... Was the, so there were, so as, a, as a spectator, you hear... The triple axle, the triple, is there a Lind, like a triple something? Triple Lindy was in a, um, uh, a Rodney di- Dangerfield movie, so that was not it. So um, that would be- Is that a diving move? No, yeah, it was a diving move in Off Back a, to School. That okay. was a, that was the triple Lindy. So okay, there's the, and then there's the, the triple- The jumps are, there's six takeoffs, right? They're all, it's, they're the same in the air and the landing. It's the takeoff that makes them different, yeah. right? So there's three edge jumps and three toe jumps, right? Which are? The axle, sow cow, and loop are the three edge triple jumps. Triple loop. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember. Okay. And then the, the toe jumps, which are the vaulting jumps, are the toe loop, flip, and lutz. Okay. Oh, the lutz. Isn't there a triple? There's a double, triple, triple lutz. lutz. What yeah. is the tri- lutz? The lutz is you're Not going- the lindy. The lutz is you're going backwards on your um, left outside edge. And then you have to reach back, you put your toe in the ice, and then you have to rotate counterclockwise. So you're going against that forward arm, you're going against it to rotate three times around and then land backwards on your right foot. So you're 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 able to at least attempt these in competition. So yeah, so I didn't warm up the triple sow. I went out to do my long program for that competition. Yeah. Your mom is there. My mom's in the corner. And um, I landed my first jump, which was normal. And then usually my the dip, most difficult jump in my program like my view at the end of that jump was of the ceiling because I was usually laying flat on my back. Yeah. You know? and so this time I just decided I'll throw a triple sow because what have I got to what lose? What do I got to lose? Yeah. And so that's kind of the way you do things, you know, with an open hand instead of a clenched fist. And I, I landed it 
And I got so excited, I forgot to mess up the rest of my program. So you nailed that program. And I won junior nationals. So now I had eight embarrassed guys instead of just two from the year before. It's like, where did this guy come from? Where did this guy come from? But it, what I didn't know is that my mom on the way to the competition had met a couple in Chicago who heard about me and, um, and had wealth, no children, and decided uh -huh. they wanted to sponsor me. Whoa. So she already knew that it wasn't my last competition, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And she didn't really want to mess me up with any of that information. So um, the only string attached was I had to move to Denver. Um, instead of training in Illinois, I'd be training in Denver. And I'd be taking from a guy um, who that year was coaching a girl named Dorothy Hamill to an Olympic gold medal. Mm. So basically I won the lottery. And so the next year I went up to the senior level because that's what you do when you're a junior champion, yeah. right? And, and those uh, kids are what eighteen and up. Yeah, it's kind of, well, it's not an age thing. It's a it's a test thing. You have to test to get into that level. And so I um, I went up into seniors and um, I was sponsored. Uh, had my very first apartment. And I turned eighteen years old. It's called the trifecta. Yeah. I was such a loser. You know, I had <laughs> I mean I, I had all this stuff going for me, and I I was too immature and I was too stupid to take advantage of it. So I went to the nationals. Um, my mom was there and I was, um, I fell on my first jump so hard that like that my leg sort of went into like a sciatica thing, you know, it was my left, my right leg, my landing leg was kind of like weakened and sort of numb. And, uh, and so I, I crawled through the rest of the program and I went back to my ninth place. Oh, back thing. to. And, um, so, um, th several months after that competition, I'm back home. Uh, because my mom had taken a turn for the worst, and um, was there any thought of going to school at that point, or were you too? You knew you were skating. Well, at that it point? was like at that point, I'd graduated high school. I went into um, the senior level, and it was sort of an all-in type of thing because yeah. I was in a training center where all the other skaters were sort of all-in. Some were doing. Some <clears> is this a new coach, or is this the this same hard-ass coach? No, this is the coach that coached Dorothy, Dorothy Hamill okay, to yeah. gold medal. So. Um, you know, I went first year, it was like loser. Um, and, and then I, you know, months later I go back home and my mom had taken a turn for the worse. And I was in a room to about three 30 in the morning and I was sleeping on the couch in my, uh, my, you know, my dad's home. I was sleeping on the couch in the family room because we had a lot of people there to support us. And, uh, my brother-in-law woke me up, um, that next morning and he said, your mother is gone. And she was, you know, for me, I mean, she was everything. She was like, person in the world I love the most. And we had, we had such a great relationship and I just adored her. And now she was gone and I just be, had to figure out how am I going to do life without her? And it was in that, that I um, decided I didn't have to, that I could take her with me wherever I went and I could have her hold me accountable. So instead of being loser man, I went to the rink every day with a passion and a, um, with and, her, with her, like, yeah. um, I'm going to be late. Nope, nope, nope. Honor her be on time. So I honored her. Um, I don't feel like doing a long program run through today. It's summer. I'm in altitude. Who cares about summer long programs? Do the full run through, honor her. So I did the full run through. And so in that, I, um, I was in the best shape of my life. And um, from that ninth place, horrific finish that she saw as the last time she ever saw me skating competition. The next year I'm on the podium at senior nationals. And uh, two years later, I'm on the Olympic team in Lake Placid. And uh, then for, um, well, I'd switch coaches. My coach in Denver had lost interest in me a little bit. 
And so um, another coach who wasn't nearly as qualified or as high ranking as that coach said, I'll coach you up. You'll be fine. By the way, you're, you're at this point a few years away, several years away from winning a gold medal. Why, why did that coach lose interest? Uh, I think it's because there was, um, he wanted to go to another facility. Uh-huh. He wanted to um, leave the rink where he was and go. He didn't to, like gold medals. Well, no, he, um, he wanted to go to a place that had all the political power and was close to us figure skating headquarters uh-huh. and had, all the toys, like okay. where he was, he was really just trying to make it work. He really wanted to get back to another oh, place. Okay. And I honestly, I wasn't really, um, after the year I, <clears throat> I made it to worlds and I was on the podium that first year after I lost my mom, the next year I tore my ankle up really bad and it was playing catch up the whole season. So he didn't, he didn't think, Oh, this guy's going to, this is like an Olympic. Yeah. And he still saw me as kind of like that guy that came in ninth, yeah, you know, okay. the two years before. And so I met with him. I said, if you want me to stay, I'll stay. But if you don't, um, I can go take from Don Laws. And he goes, I like Don. Don's a friend of mine. If you went to take from him, I wouldn't be upset. Okay. And I go, he never said stay. Okay. <laughs> you know, so. No, no, no. Yeah, he'd be great. Yeah, so you. I went he to Philadelphia. Great. Yeah, I went to Philadelphia <laughs> and made it to the Olympics that year. And then um, starting in October. That was Placid, right? That was like Placid. That was so much fun. Um, you were how old? 21? 21, yeah. Yeah. And so, so you're just a kid still. Still, yeah. I mean, totally oblivious. You know, to, how am I going to do this on my own? Uh, don't worry about that right now. <laughs> you're sponsored and you're a skater. By the just way, back that. then, are you just making like a, a little tiny bit of money to serve? Like you're not, ma- you didn't have Wheaties at that point. No, I was delivering pizzas and we'd get a little bit of a stipend for doing these big tours, yeah. you know? So I would have enough money to kind of get me through the year with gas. Money you're delivering pizza and on the Olympic team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I got fired from my pizza delivery job because what I had. P- what pizza place was it? It was in, uh, it wasn't a chain. It was a. Like a local a pizza. Place in, yeah, I loved it too, man. It was the best pizza. They had the best cheesesteaks I've ever eaten in Philadelphia. It was awesome. And I would deliver. And then I had to go. I, had, I was an alternate for a competition in Japan. And I had to go because I got called up like the week before and I told my boss, I go, look, I have to go to Japan. And he's like, he didn't believe me. It's like, how many people at work for him? I'm going, oh, by the way, I can't work next weekend because I'm going to Japan. He's like, you're a terrible person. You're fired. Get out of my sight. I never want to see you again. It's like, Andy, I'm sorry. I just have to to go to Japan. He's like, I don't believe you. Get out of here. Yeah, sure. And then all of a sudden that I make it onto the Olympic team I'm getting all this media in Philadelphia and I get a call from Andy saying, you can have your job back whenever you want. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's, that's a perk of winning is like yeah. you get your job back delivering pizzas. Is your cash working for you? For years, banks have gotten away with paying next to nothing for the privilege of holding your money. Today, investors have more options as the Federal Reserve has raised and raised and raised interest rates dramatically why not take advantage of it? If you're interested in finding a higher yielding solution for the safety allocation of your investment portfolio, reach out to my team at yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R wealth.com. And here's a crazy part. So my former coach, Carlo, um, who was at that rink in Denver, he got his job that he wanted in Colorado Springs. So his rink became vacant. So my coach, my new coach, Don Laws, oh, yeah. he took over the old rink in Denver. 
So you got to go back to Denver. Back to Denver. And yeah. I that's the like never burn a bridge uh-huh. because you could end up right back where you were before. So I went back and I had tons of friends there and I had a really good life. By the way, there. is it tra- training with skating? It's is, is it the altitude? Does that help you too? It can a little bit like, or not with skating as much. Well, every Olympics are at altitude because of the no, skiing. Of skiing. You know, yeah. yeah, so okay. it's kind of helps you yeah. be prepared for the Olympics. But all those world championships are generally at sea level, like okay. well, or below. Like um, that after eighty, the eighty season, eighty one, uh, starting in October actually of of nineteen eighty. Um, at Skate Canada in Calgary, from that competition on, it never lost again as an amateur. So you really—that—that's when you started to take off. You yeah. get to the Olympics in Lake Placid. Now you did not win there yet. Yeah. No, I was fifth. Okay. But I thought if I was eighth, that would be really good. So you did. You felt good about Lake Placid, and then how did you ascend to like, the best guy in the, in the world? Well, it, a lot of it's attrition. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so you have the five. Guys, okay, I was the four guys in front of me, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm fifth. Uh, Robin Cousins, the gold medalist, turned professional. Jan Hoffman, the silver medalist, went to medical school. Huh. Charlie Tickner, the bronze medalist, went turned professional. So all I had to do was wake up, and I'm right second <laughs> in the world. Okay, yeah. So that's a good cup of coffee. And the guy that I needed to beat. Yeah, who did you have to beat? So um, it, this it, is in and this is in '84 in Sarajevo. This is '81. This is going into that first four years. Um, this four. Is, yeah, this is going into that next four years because they retired right after the world championships in 1980. So now I'm like second in the world with like four years to go for the next Olympics. And it's like, wow, that's like a minefield or like a yeah, gauntlet. Let's not get hurt. Yeah. So the guy I had to beat, ironically, was um, uh, remember when I fell five times and came in dead last in novice nationals? He was 12 years old on the senior men's podium because he was a genius. So of he figures. was like a prodigy. Prodigy. And he was brilliant at compulsory figures, of which I hated compulsory figures. So I had to repair my relationship with figures. And so I did that and kind of fell in love with them. And it was really awesome because I started to get good at them. And then we went head-to-head that year. um, I won nationals in San Diego. And then we went to the Worlds in Hartford, Connecticut. And he was in first after the short, and I was in third after the short. And I won the long to pull up to first, and he was second. So it was a really good so rivalry. So all of a sudden, now you're number one. And then the whole next year, um, undefeated, on uh, 82, and then going into 83, the year before the Olympics, um, things were kind of shaken up a little bit. You know, we had Boitano coming up. We had Orser coming up. We had this guy from Europe uh, named Norbert Schramm who was kind of turning heads. And it was like, ooh, it's game on. I got two years to go, and this is going to be tight. And so I won in 83, that whole season. And then uh, going into 84, it was kind of mine to lose. And so um, uh, had a great fall season, won nationals. My goal was to win nationals every single aspect of the competition by every judge. And I did that. That's kind of a cool goal. Mm -hmm. And then I went to the Olympics. And uh, I didn't skate as well as I'd trained all year. Um, but I was able, because I knew I did the math looking at the entire field yeah. strategically. I knew if I, you know, the way that they scored the competition, if I was top three in figures short and long, I couldn't lose the gold medal mathematically. As long as you were top three in all of them, all three. but you didn't necessarily have <clears throat> to win any of them. No. Okay. Because I knew that I'd be top three in figures 
And then I could if I and then the really good free skaters were going to be down in figures. Uh -huh. And then if I was top three in short, that would keep me ahead. And if I was top three in long, I'd be ahead of enough where they couldn't catch me in the long yeah. program. So I won the figures. And by the way, the long program is long. Well, back then it was well, it went from five minutes in um, in Hartford that first year I won Worlds to four and a half minutes. And now it's I've, four. I've looked up some clips of you, and I guess maybe it was the uh, maybe it was just boring that you thought it was that long. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think it was. What about what was it in 1980? 80 was five minutes. Okay, and I remember thinking like, how are you gonna? How do you do this for this long? It's You're hard doing your triple yeah. lutz and the trip. It's like it's it's not like a. It looks like you're sprinting for five full minutes. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's kind of you choreograph out of breath. You're out of breath oh, at the, the end. end. You're toast. You're done. You're toast. It's just ugh. So, how did you do in each one of those? Did you do one, two, three? Then, so I won the figures, which did was what, great because I beat a guy that was beyond fantastic in figures. He's probably the best figures skater probably ever. In figures is what the one. The eights, the, the compulsory eight, you trace eights around. Oh, yeah, okay. And they're all different shapes and sizes and turns within those eights. And sometimes they're three circles. And you got to, you know, it's just, it's really complex. And it's, it's all technique and it's all repetition. And, you know, by, by the time I got to the loop, so the loop is the circles are about as big as you are tall, right? Uh -huh. So they're much smaller circles. Yep. And so you have to do a loop at the top of each circle, right? So it was a three circle figures. So you push off, you change edge, you do a loop in the top, and then you push off and you change edge and you do a loop at the bottom and you do that three times. And the way I remember it, um, because the guy that I was competing against again with the great figures guy, he, I beat him five to four, five judges to four on the first figure, okay. which was huge because nobody thought anyone would ever beat him in figures. And then the next figure I beat him seven to two. So you crushed the guy. And then when I got to the loop, it was like, like the three tracings were like one line. It was like, it was beautiful. I looked at it. I was like, ah, that is like the greatest thing I've ever done. This is, I want to frame it. I want to take it home. I, I want to take a picture of it. It was like, it was so perfect that it was like, I can't believe I just did that. And I beat him nine, nothing. So um, going into the short program, I was really adrenalized and, uh, you know, it's the Olympics, you got the rings on the boards. Yeah. It, I, all the media was telling me if I didn't win, it was oh, a loss. Oh, so much pressure. It was yeah. humiliating. For, I'm the only lock, you know, oh, um, you've got to win, you've got to win. If you don't win, it's going to be, it's a loss. And yeah. so I go into the short, I couldn't feel my legs in the short program practice. Because you were nervous. Because I was scared to death because yeah. now I had everything to lose. And the short program is if you miss one element, you're done, right? You. Like the the Meaning if you're like supposed to do a double and you don't, yeah, your 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 score is terrible. Your score, like any, there's seven required elements, and um, if you miss any of them, it's like you're 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 giving points to the rest of the field. Yeah. The, the cliche is you can't win a competition in the short program, but you can most certainly lose, lose one. It, yeah. Right. So I went out and I was so nervous I couldn't even land a jump and I was people were screaming and it was crazy and there were signs everywhere and I was like, Ugh. and um, if I had to skate first after the warm up, it I would have been, I would have been in trouble. But I found an empty dressing room in the um, backstage and I found a mirror and I I remember um, shouting every expletive you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> <laughs> like to the point where I, I had no voice left because I was screaming at the top of my lungs, 
to purge all the adrenaline out of my body. So you're just screaming there like a crazy person. Like a crazy person. Mother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't know. How can you come this far? And I just got it all out. And I went out to skate my short program. I was kind of, woo. I was a little tired. And I, I hit the combination like it was ah, butter. And then double axle was gorgeous. And I got so excited that um, the footwork, I almost kind of clipped the wall coming around, picking up speed for the footwork. Got down to the end. I almost clipped the wall on the other side. And then I go into the camel spin, which was my, my least favorite. It's like when you have one foot down and your legs back behind you. And it's like your body and your leg are kind of parallel to the ice. And I hated that spin, but I, I got better at it. And I was so like adrenalized that I went into that spin. And I hit the toe too soon. And it went, instead of going one, two, you have to do five revolutions on each foot. It went one and a half, <laughs> two. And I'm like, Arr! I'm like doing everything I can to get this spin around. And then I changed feet and I got the, the required revolutions in. But my coach, I not as good as you wanted. Yeah. Not, not nearly as good as I wanted to. And so Brian Orser, um, man, he skated great. He was amazing. And he won. We had a broken tie actually for the short program. So he won the short. I was second. So now <clears throat> I hadn't lost a long program in almost four years. So we're going into the long program, but going back to practice, which was really funny. We're in Sarajevo. I'm on practice and I look up in the stands and there's Brian Orser up in the stands and it's like, okay, watch this. So I do a clean run through of my long program, like four, perfect. Four, four, four and a half minutes, four and a half minutes. minutes, clean, like hit every single jump. Like, and I'm bowing to the audience, you know, that's there at practice. And I looked up at him and I was like, oh, crap, he's going to beat me in the long program. He's going to win the long program. I go, oh, come on. I worked too hard for this. And I, by the time we got to long, I was, um, the whole right side of my head was just filled. I had a cold and it was just filled with, and I couldn't hear out of my right ear. And it was, I was just off balance and I didn't skate. I didn't use that as an excuse. And then I, nobody knew I was sick. I didn't even bring it up during the competition. I just skated. I didn't skate as well as I could, but he won the long, I was second. Uh -huh. So he and did win that one. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So he pulled all the way up to second and I was, I stayed first. And, uh, so I won, um, an Olympic, gold medal, which to me to this day still two, doesn't make any two sense. Two skating questions, because yeah. then I want to get into some of the, then you went through some serious struggles after that. Yeah. Yeah. This is just for the, the guy watching a commercial for the Olympics. I see a, a, I see a gymnast do a triple whatever. And Simone Biles does a triple off the vault and lands it. I see you do a triple Lutz. That's my first question. The second one, maybe this is easier at first. How the hell do you not fall down, throw up dizzy when you do those million spins? Your body gets used to it. So your body can adjust to just about anything. And like, So you, you think, don't get dizzy when you do, I mean, you're doing like what, 20 when you're ri ripping around in a circle? When you do like a, a combination spin, yeah. especially, um, you'll do, well, you have to do like, now you have to do, I think um, you have to hold each position for, I think, um, 
I don't know how many revolutions it is. I'm supposed to know this. Like 20 seconds? No, it's just each one is, you got to hold it for at least two revolutions, sometimes three. And then if you want the bonus points, you hold one position for nine revolutions. So in a spin like that, you could do 25. 20. And again, you just, you get used to it. I always think, how do you not just fall down? Well, I always rotate it counterclockwise jumps and spins. So if I rotate, does why, is, why does that help? Because well, your body gets used to rotating in a certain certain direction. Okay, okay. So if I were to try to do a spin clockwise, you would get dizzy. I would totally get sick. Yeah. Okay, so that's the answers that long-standing <laughs> yeah. questions I've had since I was like five. Yeah. Your body can get used to anything. It's really amazing. It's really miraculous. Actually. And then when you are doing your, and I guess this is for ski. Anybody that's jumping and flipping, I think about Sean White and snowboarding. Do you? Do you, are you conscious of that, or is it more like you know you have to you have to get a launch point, you tuck, and all of a sudden you're you're landing, or do you feel it while you're in? The, so when was the last time you were able to like? Are you a golfer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, a golf swing, yeah, golf it, it goes like one one thousand, two one thousand, yeah. right? So it's about two seconds in a golf swing, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you have good rhythm and. So in a jump, a skating jump, by the time you take off to the landing, it's if it's gigantic, it's 0.7 seconds. The three. Yeah. Okay. So you're not. So you're going from zero to three revolutions to zero in 0.6 usually seconds. Okay. So how many things can you think about in 0.6 seconds? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. Well, right? it's a good. So it's a good analogy. Like it's a repetition, swing. repetition. Yeah. It's timing. It's repetition. It's repetition. More repetition, timing, and and getting into a rhythm and a consistency that allows you to kind of rise above any negative thoughts that you might have. Because it looks impossible. Like it, it looks, is impossible. Yeah. But then you have to make it look easy. <laughs> and then once you make it look easy, nobody really thinks that it's hard anymore. They just yeah. think it's skating. It's like Argh. and then they're like, "Hey, we're gonna do four." Fl- well, is, you know, they, Nathan Chen. I mean, what he does? Somebody do four spins? Down? No, he does. He did like six in a program. Four quads. He did six quads in a program. And that's like a quadruple action. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's insane. Those are like, that's freaking mutant stuff, right? Yeah. So, you know, so Nathan was like, he was so far ahead of everyone. And it was great to see him do as well as he did. Are you still commentating? Will you be are no, you commentating? Um, yeah, it's. You know, it's why funny. do we have you back commenting? You're the best commentator in the on NBC. I think it was um, a lot of things. I think you know when Johnny and Tara came in in Sochi, they turned a lot of heads, and and I think that the network just thought you know fresh faces, fresh approach, yeah. fresh look, fresh fresh, and they're really um, very gifted in in a lot of the social media aspects, which yeah. you know it. it draws more focus. So, um, oh, cause you don't I have get, enough instant, instant chat followers. So you can't, you're not allowed to be the commentator anymore. No, no, I, don't, I think it was just, there, there was such a, um, a breath of fresh air uh-huh. that I just felt like the network just felt like it was time for a change. Okay. So I went into more of a pregame post game role. Oh, so you, pre-game. so you are doing something, something. With yeah, the network? So we did a okay. thing in Pyeongchang and in, and I actually did uh, Beijing Olympics in my you did, basement. Yeah. They set up a room in my basement. You zoomed. Well, that was still in the middle of COVID, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. like, nobody really, except for the interviewers, went to Beijing. Everybody was in Stamford, Connecticut. Yeah. Um, but I, I stayed home, and I did it in my basement. And they set up. It was really cool because I had enough um, um, internet capacity for them to put a remote control camera and lighting in my basement. And they did, like, a... 
a backdrop, yeah, uh, which was matched the studio that they were doing this stroke oh, cool. Olympic okay. ice. So it looked so, like you were there. Yeah, kinda. so it felt like I was there, and it was it it matched enough where I was able to, to I would get up, I would go grab a cup of coffee, I go down into my little basement studio. <laughs> it was like an empty bedroom, and um, I would do the rehearsal and walk through the elements of the show. I go back up, make breakfast for my kids. Um, they'd go to school. I go back down, do the Olympics. And then I'd come back upstairs. I'd make myself breakfast and then um, go back down. We have a meeting for the next day. And that was how I did the Olympics. It was so easy. I felt guilty. It was, it was like, it was only two weeks. So, right. Or was yeah, it, yeah. 16 days. Um, but do you realize, and here's the crazy thing. They still haven't had an award ceremony for the first event held at the Beijing Olympics. Why not? Because Camila Valieva failed a drug test oh. and they can't make up their minds on what they're going to do. So the current leadership at the IOC broke the Olympic charter by not making a decision and having um, a, because they couldn't decide what to do. Because so it's still in limbo? It's still in limbo. Why wouldn't the, wh Well, what, what they did in order to prevent that from happening again, you're not allowed to go to the Olympics unless you're 17 years old by such, such and such a date. Okay. And that gave WADA, the World Anti-Doping Association, um, jurisdiction over every athlete right now because she was so young. Yeah, how old when, was she? She was um, 15 when she did the doping test, but she was 16 at the Olympics. Okay. So they said they didn't have jurisdiction, but still, if it, it's like it's their event. It's like, well, no, we have to keep the Olympics clean. Yeah. So if someone, regardless of their age, fails a drug test, then they they need to sit down and take a break. They don't. They're they're and if they participate having failed a drug test. And I, I do think that those results should be thrown out. Yeah, yeah. That would give the United States an Olympic gold medal, gold medal in the team competition. I'm not being a homer. I'm just saying it's the right thing to do. Yeah. The, it's okay to be a homer. I know? usually, I am. the other thing about, <laughs> the other thing about it is that we all, we sometimes forget because we think about sports in America as, you know, it's the most popular sport is NFL. It's, you know, Texas versus, you know, Philadelphia mm -hmm. or whatever it may yep. be, Miami versus the Eagles. It, but the, the thing is about golf and about figure skating and a lot of the, uh, and the Olympic sports, snowboarding, it is, um, it's you against the entire world. So you're not just competing in the United States. You're competing about the, against the best people in every single country around the world, which I always get reminded of when I start talking about the Olympics. After all of this though, it wasn't as though you went to the Olympics, got a gold medal, and then everything was awesome. No. So you faced a you've. I know you've given. I remember hearing you say you gave away a medal. Or you, well, you got I, I rid got rid of that gold medal because it just was. It, it it just sort of offended me, and it was really wild. I, you know, why I, did it offend you? Well, now I understand because I came to faith that it could become an idol. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, but it was in that it was like. I saw so many guys get stuck. Like, that's it. And and it was so ironic that- So many Olympic athletes. Yeah, they get stuck in that moment so much that that's their entire identity. And it's hard to go beyond, I mean- They can't, they're stuck, right? I, and a lot of people get stuck in that. And I'm, I'm not judging them. I that just I didn't want that to be my journey because mm -hmm. I still wanted to be an ice show comedian, yeah, right? You still know? wanted to. <laughs> so after that season, I joined the Ice Capades, yep. right? And they, you know, the president of Ice Capades is somebody I truly respect and admire. We actually became really close friends. But when I signed, he said, 
we had to sign you because we didn't want you to go to our competition, but I know how it's going to go. You're going to party. You're going to think the work is done. Oh, because it's so easy. You're going to miss shows. You're going to go, no, 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 no. I actually want to build a career. Uh So I'm going to be the best employee you've ever had. Uh So for the next two years, I never missed a show, never missed a press call. I was a model employee. I signed a limited contract, so I wasn't doing 33 weeks. I was doing 20, but I'd end up doing 23 each year because there were other athletes that got hurt or got sick and I would step in for them. So I was beyond my, what I promised them I would do. I went above and beyond that. So after two years, um, I had a third year option and the president of the the company was there at the event on my last night on my second year. And I was like, here comes my third year option. It's going to be awesome. And uh, at the end of the show, he came up and he, he said, you did it. You did everything you said you were going to do. You are you're the probably um, easily one of the most reliable and you skate at the top of your game and congratulations. And I said, Thanks. And then he put his arm around me, he started to walk. And I go, Oh no. Uh-oh. I go, so you know, we went through a sale. I go, I can't wait to meet the new owner. And he said, Well, he doesn't want to meet you. And I said, Why? And he said, Because they only want women stars. So uh. after two years of performing perfectly, I lose my job. And in that, um, I had to figure out what was next. And I got, um, my management was IMG and they came and they said, look, um, we'd love you to help us put a tour together. Uh-huh. And I said, let me check my calendar. <laughs> it's kind of open. Yeah, a little bit open. So we, we built a show called Stars on Ice. And you uh, started that. I founded with, it. You yeah. founded it with, with IMG. Yeah. And so that's still going. Uh, ice capades, not so much, you uh-huh. know, they needed more men to sell tickets, passive aggression, but, um, <laughs> it's, it's that, right. So I was given this incredible career and, and it was year, I thought if I skated four years that I was fooling a lot of people yeah. and now I'm in year 13 of my professional Still doing career. it. Yeah. And I couldn't stand up straight anymore. And that's, um, after 50 cities of pain, I went into an emergency room just to say, I think I've got an ulcer. Just give me some medicine. I need. I got a show tonight. I got to get back to work. And the doctor said, we found a mass. And I, I was like, what? <laughs> I don't know what that is. And he said, it's either benign, malignant, or something else. It was like two months shy of the 20th anniversary of losing my mom. And I'm realizing I'm being diagnosed with the same disease. And so... The um, same cancer that your mom had? No, she had breast cancer. Um, I didn't know what I had. It, just, it was my abdomen. So... Um, I did the show that night. Next day, I went to the Cleveland Clinic, and they did a biopsy, and they found that I had stage 3 testicular cancer. So I had to stop skating. I had to go right into chemotherapy, and then I did that for four months, and then I did um, a 38-staple surgery, surgery, and they removed the offending um, soldier, and then um, it was sort of back to life. So I was back on tour the next year, so you, but it, but it took a, a year to recover. No, I, I didn't live, give myself a year to recover. So I was diagnosed on March 16th, um, 1997. Uh, at the end of November, 1997, we did our first show of Stars on So it Ice. wasn't even a year. No, my first show back was October 29th. We did a Back on the Ice special with CBS and... So that's after surgery, after, after everything. radiation. I had no business doing any of this stuff, but I did it because that was my carrot is I had to, I wanted to get my life back. I wanted to get back on tour. I wanted to, I want, I had to get my life back. And so all of that, um, 
attention that I was getting as a cancer patient mm-hmm. and survivor spilled over into that touring season. And it was, it was really unbelievable. The crowds that showed up and the compassion that people had towards me and for everything that I had Knowing and, what you had gone yeah, through. And so, yeah. And so um, I was just back on the road and, and, um, but my life was different. I, I just, and you had, had you started a family at that point? No, no. So you were I was, still I was in a, a, no a relationship and I just realized that I just, man, I just, there's something about this that just wrecked me, that just broke me. And it, and it, my mom didn't have a second chance and I did. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to do with my second chance? And I needed to work it out. So I stepped away from my life. Comple- I went, I just got my car and I started to drive and I ended up in LA and I realized when I got there that it's a really great place to be alone. Mm-hmm. L.A.? No, it's, it's fences and hedges and walls and uh-huh. people basically live in their cars. It's a great place to kind of, if you want to be alone, you can be easily alone in, in LA. L.A. So I did that, and then um, I would go back to tour, and then I did that. And it was on um, three years to the day of my diagnosis that I met a girl backstage in Memphis who would become my wife. And... Um, uh, nine months and two days after we got married, my first son was born and, uh, I did the math. Um, and, uh, and we were now we're living life. And then it was, he was about 14 months old and I became symptomatic. And, um, and, From, and you, did you recognize this? when you say symptomatic, did you know? Yeah. My What'd energy. You know? Oh man. I couldn't even get out of bed zapped. in the morning. Zapped. And then my peripheral vision started to change where I couldn't, it was yeah. like, like my, out of, and so I went in because I, I was preaching at that point because I had all those years of, of advocacy for men's health, you know, now testicular cancer that you need to, if there's something going on, you need to get to it right away. And so I had to practice what I preach. Yeah. And I went in, they did a head scan and they found a brain tumor. And, uh, I, I was doing a show in Cleveland to raise money for cancer How old research. Were you at the time? Uh, my goodness, I was 46. 40, yeah, 46. And so when they say you've got a brain tumor, do you you immediately just think like, that's it? I think I'm going to die. So I had to tell my wife, and I have this 14 month old son now. And, um, I, she, she was arriving at the hotel as I got back from the doctor and she said, what's going on? I'll tell you upstairs. And so we got up to the room and my son Aiden's, we put the phone down on the floor and he's like banging the cradle on the phone. Just playing. He's so cute at that age. They're just going. And she said, what's going on? I said, I have a brain tumor. I didn't know how else to tell her. And she just grabbed both of my hands without skipping a beat. And she started to pray. And it was like, ah, that's what that is. Power in the storm. Wow. This is, it was the most powerful moment of my life. And I've had a lot of big moments, right? That was the biggest. And so she prayed and prayed and prayed. And then we just said, you know, our mantra is, it is what it is, whatever it takes. So they it could. It is what it is, whatever, whatever it, takes. it takes. And so a week later, they had to do a biopsy. And so they put a little hole in the top of my head and they went down through and they grabbed a piece of it. And a lot of bad things could happen in that surgery. A lot of bad things. Yeah. And they have to tell you, right? So I woke up. They are I, messing with the computer. Yeah, so yeah. I, I could wiggle my fingers and toes. Oh, do I see any? Yeah, it's just a hole. It's yeah, right, a little hole. Yeah, yeah right, the right there. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. So, um, I and they said I could lose speech. I went test. I go okay. I can still speak. <laughs> um, so I guess it worked. And then the doctor came in. He was happy. And the, my wife came in. We know what it is. And what is it? And they go, it's a craniofringioma. I go, 
Like, I'm supposed to know what a cranial fridge what, moment. What the hell is Here's that? some information. So they gave my wife some information. Tracy's looking at it. It's she before said, WebMD. Yeah. She said, oh my goodness, listen to this. Craniofringiomas are usually detected very early in a child's life due to a lack of growth and development. So the tumor had something to do with you not growing as a kid. The tumor was my childhood illness because I was born with it. You were born. <laughs> you were born, you had it all those years yes. for 47 yeah. years. Yeah. You had that too. Yeah. And for whatever reason, the years that I skated, it didn't do its mischief. But as soon as I stepped away to be a dad, it, it started to grow. It's, it came right back. And so they did. How did they get rid of it? Gamma knife radiation. So they radiated my whole brain. Okay. And then I lost all kind of hormonal activity. So I'm on all these different pharmaceuticals yeah. to replacement stuff. And I'm on that every day. And then I went back to life. And so then, they got, they were able to get it. Well, they, they zapped it. They nuked it with radiation. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a whole big process where they, they screw a halo to your head. And I kept telling them, go righty tighty, lefty loosey. Come on guys, do this right. Clockwise. counterclockwise. It, it, it was a lot of pressure. And then they put yeah this weird helmet on you and then they shove you into a machine and then it's 201 points of lotus radiation all culminating on the tumor. Yeah. And so that was the best they had to offer. So I did that. And then they, the tumor went away. And then I decided, I guess six years later, that I wanted to get back into skating just to be the 10th anniversary of my big cancer yeah. benefit. So I started training again. I hadn't been on the ice for five years. So I started training again and trying to figure out how to do these jumps and how to, how to get like myself. How did I used shape. to do this? Yeah, exactly. And it was hard. So I did that. And it was about three weeks before the event. I'm in a cab with a buddy of mine, Bobby Goldwater, he used to be an executive at Madison Square Garden. And he said, uh, how's the training going? I go, pretty good. And he goes, how's the backflip? And it's like, 51, Bobby. Why would I do that? And he said, sorry. I just, when was the last time you did a show without one? It was like, oh, snap. I <laughs> Uh, there's going to be expectation. So I, I called my trainer and I said, I go, get me a gymnastics coach immediately. And so I went back to Nashville, started working with a gymnastics coach who was my age, who thought I was... To try to reinstate. How old were you when you first did the backflip? I was 26. Okay. So this, and then you got famous for it. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's, you know, 25 years later and I'm trying to figure out how to do, how it, to do it, it again. again. <laughs> and so I was getting over on it and I, 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 I actually got it um, into the show and, um, and i landed it and which was miraculous. And then, um, it was right after that, I tore everything in my right shoulder. So I'm in physical therapy post-surgery for that. And the symptoms came back and I was like, come on. And you could, you could tell it was the oh, same no, cancer I, or I the knew, same I knew brain it. tumor. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. So um, I went in and I said, yeah, it's back, but now it's presenting itself really well for surgery. Mm. So you can't have the radiation again because it'll destroy your optic nerves. It'll, it's bad. So no more radiation for you. And I said, okay. So they went up through my nose and they nicked an artery on the way in, which can happen in a certain, depending on patients, like single digit percentage uh -huh. chance but of that course, happening. But of course they yeah. nicked you. Yeah. So that one surgery became nine more. And nice. so, yeah, so all that work I did to build up all of that Backflip. to get back into shape and everything put me into a position to be able to endure what I was about to go and do with those nine surgeries. So at the end of the nine surgeries, I went blind in my right eye. I got some of it, I might say most of it back. 
And, um, but it's blurry kind of around the ends and tops. And then I went back to life and, um, not skating anymore. So that was your, how many, how many different cancer diagnoses and tumors? Did you well, have? I had the testicular cancer in 97, uh, brain tumor, 2004, brain tumor, 2010. And then we get to 2016 and it's back again. And this time I'm thinking, um, huh, huh. I've got options. Huh. So I can do the surgical option again. I could do a medical option now. There's this targeted therapy. Uh-huh. Or everything in my spirit said, just get strong. Uh-huh. Just get strong. Don't worry about this thing. Because you've been, you've been through this so many times. Yeah. And, and again, the first time it was faith. The second time it was dread fear. Dread fear. It was just like getting kicked in the stomach. This time it was like, huh, don't worry about this thing. Just get strong. And so I just decided to get strong physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. And in that, um, I go back for my scan, and they go, didn't grow. It's like, great. I go back for a scan three months later. It shrunk half. I go, okay, we're on to something here. And so now it's like everything I do, you know, if I'm, if I'm aspirationally, there has to be a physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual component to it. Otherwise, it's like sitting on a chair with three legs. You know, it, it, it's just, it doesn't work. So everything in my life is powered by all of that. So that did that eventually then go away? I haven't looked at it for, well, COVID, access to hospitals, it got weird. Yeah, it did. And I realized that if it was shrinking and growing and shrinking, growing, growing, shrinking, shrinking, growing, shrinking... I'm not going to, I'm not even going to acknowledge this thing unless I become symptomatic again. And you've been okay for how many years? Uh, seven. You yeah, know, so it's like that. It's like 2004 to 2010 to 2016. Huh. Pattern has emerged. <laughs> I don't like this pattern at all. But I just decided the last one, I go, no, no, no. I'm the dog. This is the tail, Ugh. right? I'm, I'm not letting the tail wag the dog anymore. I'm going to live my life fully completely no matter how much and, and and if i need to deal with it i will i'm not stupid but at the same time if i'm not if it, it i'm not going to allow it to rule and ruin my everyday you know i looked up last night how many people have lived in the world over the course of history like 50,000 years or something it's like 100 billion something yeah like it's like a, a little over 100 billion and i think at some point you said that ever this Every but all hundred billion, hundred billion yeah. people mm-hmm. have suffered yeah. at some point, right? Yeah. Yet we live in such a we live in America, and we're always avoiding pain and avoiding suffering. <laughs> Good luck with that, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, but we all go through it. Yeah, yeah, and and you've learned to. I mean, do you you fear death at this point? Not anymore. Not at all. No. I, I, I've walked out of neuro ICU three times, maybe four. And in that, it sort of, you get to a point where I really feel like I'm playing with house money right yeah. now. So it's like, I, you know, it could have ended in 97. It could have ended in 2004. It could have ended in 2010. All, it could have ended. All of it could have ended. 2010 was really close. But when you get to, you know, you get to all the, get through all that and you realize that our bodies are, are susceptible, fragile, mm-hmm. vulnerable mm-hmm. to countless things, equally resilient, ultimately temporary. Fragile, resilient, 
temporary. Yeah. Do, what about just going through? So you've again, you've had so many of these scary, really scary periods of time. And I would think you did. You just have no anxiety. Oh no! Naturally, no, or do you get you do sca- get scared out of my mind? You're like a normal yeah. person that gets scared. Yeah, of course. I when I got down for the testicular cancer surgery because I knew it was like 38 staples and then some. I I was scared out of my mind, and my doctor, um, I actually te- was texting with him the other day. I, I, he just goes, "What's wrong with you?" And I go, "I'm scared." Yeah. And he goes, "Why?" And I go, "Have you ever done this before?" <laughs> he goes, "I've done seven this month," and I was like. Oh, okay. Okay, we're good. Let's go. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's like for anybody going through a health crisis, you know, there are really talented doctors out there that do really wonderful things. And then there are guys that do six a day. Mm-hmm. All you really want is a six a day guy. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's, you don't really, you know, and, and I don't believe in second opinions. Mm-hmm. I believe in seventh opinions. Mm. So where, where you just out. keep shopping, just keep going around and understanding because with cancer and, you know, I do a lot of work in cancer. It's there's different modalities of treatment yeah, and, yeah. and where you stand depends on where you sit. That's a Murphy's law, by the way, where you stand on something definitely depends on where you sit, you know? And if you're sitting across from a surgeon, you're probably going to get cut. That's mm-hmm. his passion. That's his training. He wants yeah, to help you. Yeah. Radiation oncologist, you're probably going to get radiated. Um, hey, Barbara, do I need a haircut? Yeah, yeah. It's like that, right? Yeah. But it's also... Yeah, of course you need surgery. Of course you need... Yeah. But it's also, you know, if you're sitting across from a hemonc, you're probably going to try to find a way to put you on chemo. Yeah. You know, so in every in everything, there there are solutions. And even on the radiation side, I mean, my foundation offices are in a proton therapy center. Proton? Only, yeah, there's only 43 of them in the United States. But it's a, it's a particle beam. It's not an X-ray or photon beam. So traditional radiation goes through the tissue. Right? It's everything. And it runs out of energy at, at some point. Yeah. Right? So it's it's released its energy on the cancer. Great. But then there's collateral damage. Mm-hmm. With proton therapy, it's a particle. So it's the difference between a grenade and a sniper. Mm-hmm. So they can put that wherever they... And so in that, we see the advancement of cancer treatment options. Instead of getting gamma knife radiation, if I would have had access to proton therapy, it would have been much less... Um, destructive to right? to the surrounding yeah because my whole brain got exposed it, to is proton therapy gotten better yeah or, it's great it, I mean, it continues it was invented to in the 60s it was commercialized in the 80s fda approved in the 80s and they just keep getting it more dialed in and more it's gotten smaller better cheaper and it's a it's an elegant option for people dealing with hard tumors for people that get a diagnosis and mm-hmm. they get a cancer diagnosis or they get a um Anything medical that we, we we everybody at some point has has a has a issue a big issue. Uh, what, what do you tell somebody in their fifties or their sixties when they're supposed to have lots of time and lots of fun living and life ahead? What do you tell them to get through adversity? Take a breath. Take a breath. Um, allow the fear to do its work. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the, there's a quote that says courage is fear that said its prayers. And I hundred percent believe that in any time you're broadsided because in general, bad things only happen to other people. <laughs> right. But when they happen to us, we're not prepared for it. Right? right. So take a breath. All right. Now, okay. Surround yourself with the people that you want to uh-huh. be, to get you through this and let's start wearing out opinions. Let's start finding as many opinions as we can. Who's the best at this particular situation the best of the best. I want access. I want an opinion. I want 
access to that person and you just you leverage leverage work. leverage leverage it's and good. you get to work because it's your life and it's your longevity and and you know there's again there's only so many sands in an hourglass right and and we've got to we want to make sure that we have as much sand in there as we possibly can put in there and if we can add some sand let's do that right so in you know when i said you know we're we're fragile resilient temporary i meant it it's like you know, our dash is the most important thing, you know, and, and we got to, you know, if we can just keep pushing and, and live healthier and eat healthier and move and exercise and, and just take responsibility for our longevity, it changes everything. How would you just, if you were on a dating app, how would you describe yourself? <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, a friend of mine Let's came just up. say you were single. Let's say I was single. All right. It single, was, you're 50, yeah, you're rich. Yeah. That's my favorite thing. I love this. Um, my personal ad would read, short, bald, half-neutered, chemoed, radiated, surgically repaired, retired male figure skater of unknown ethnic origin, seeks a beautiful, intelligent woman for long walks, laughter, and an interest in my hobby for collecting life-threatening illnesses. <laughs> I love how you punctuate... Figure skater, male, male figure skater, because it's figure kind of skater. every woman's dream <laughs> is to be with a male figure skater. You know, it's kind Did of. Did you like, consult uh, on Blades of Glory? I was in it. No, that's right. You were. You were in it. Yeah, I loved it. What do it. you think about that? I what, loved what, it. What was the move that almost killed? Was it the Iron Lotus? The uh, fabled Iron Lotus. It was just a myth. Nobody had ever seen one before. Well, that's right. You, that you were commentating the about getting it. their head cut off. Right. Yeah, it's like. I can't believe I'm seeing this with my own eyes. <laughs> I think they're setting up the fabled Iron Lotus. And I had so much fun on that movie. My goodness, we just, I just laughed and just sitting with Will Ferrell at the, yeah, you get at to the hang top out of his Ferrell, game yeah. and, and just getting to you know John Heater, who's brilliant, and spending time with the cast. You know, it's like Amy Poehler. Because you always up. want to be a comedian. That, I, I show comedian. And then, and then meanwhile, you get into a, the funniest Will Ferrell movie. Ever. One of the top three of Ever. all time. Amy Poehler grew up in Burlington, Massachusetts, oh, which is so the home yeah. of Peter and Kitty Carruthers. And wait, actually, wait, who's her skating partner? What's his, what's that actor's name? Uh, 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 Will Arnett. Will Arnett. They were married at the time. Oh, I didn't They're not realize. married anymore. Okay. But they were married at the time. And and they're brilliant. And they're funny. And, and it was just such a great environment to be in. And I'm 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 always going to be grateful for that opportunity. So it was one of the. It's just so much fun. How so how, how long fun. did that? Or how how long were you? I was only on the, set for two days. But, you but I went in. I got to watch, and I got to go in and watch him shoot some things. And then my I when I was living in L.A., one of the guys I played golf with a lot was Craig T. Nelson, and he played the coach. Oh, he was the coach. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. he's so. Good. So we were playing Co golf. He one is day. coach. Yeah, he is coach. Right, right, so we were playing golf one day, and it's like Craig I know I hang out with celebrities and movie stars all the time. Not so much, but we were, we were playing golf one day and he goes, I just got a script for a skating movie. And it's like, Oh <laughs> yeah. He goes, I think you're a part of that. And I go, I am. And he goes, should I do it? And I go, absolutely. And he goes, it's, it, it, it I, he goes, I couldn't stop laughing reading the script. Last it was just night. so funny. Blades yeah. of glory. But it was all, you know, we were doing our shtick, you know, we were, it was after, it was an empty arena. We we're in the Los Angeles uh, sports arena, and it was empty except people were messing around. And they were shooting our stuff in a commentary position way up high, and um, we do our takes and everything else. And then the director came up and they go, "Scott, can you come with me?" And I go, "Yeah, am I in trouble?" Because <laughs> I always think I'm in trouble. Yeah. He goes, "No, um, Will just wrote an interview sketch that he wants you to do down in the kiss and cry area," and it's like cool yeah so we did this thing 
And every time we did a take, he'd do it differently. Okay. He, every time. He was just... Every time he'd do it differently. And they had... So you were interviewing him. I interviewed him, um, Chaz, and Jimmy. Chaz Michael Michelson. Yeah. And he goes, we're taking this, you know, skating train straight to, you know, and it was like, and then a woman came by with a bottle of champagne, like that's ever in kissing cry, never. And she comes by with a bottle of champagne and he takes the bottle and he smacks her on the rear end and he starts chugging it. I go, so I started talking to Jimmy and, uh, and he goes, we just tried to remain focused. And he gave like the figure skating interview. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, play the straight man. Will Ferrell, not so much. Straight guy, you know, yeah. He was the kind of the straight guy, and but he was so much fun, and oh, it was just a great experience. Tell our audience your philosophy around attitude. Well, I mean, the only true disability in life is a bad attitude. You know, I, I've seen too much, I've experienced too much, and the, I, ol the, the only true disability. The only true disability in, in life, life is a bad attitude. Really? I, I I recently met this wonderful guy, um, Daniel Ritchie, and he was born without arms. So he had to grow up and learn how to do everything without arms. And I love this man. We, we became such good friends and, um, oh my goodness, he's just, he's just so inspiring. And he, he's a true testament to that. He got teased and bullied and he just didn't like his life. And, and then he understood that he was perfectly and wonderfully made, right? So in that perfectly and wonderfully made, he, his parents never, they never let him say the word can't or... Yeah shouldn't or don't, he would go, uh, Dan, I need you out and mow the lawn. And he goes, huh? work it out. So he did. And we just became dear friends. And I look at him and I thought, if anybody had permission to, to roll to, up their yeah. tent and just, it was him. It's not fair. And he's, it's not fair. He's got a beautiful family and he, he's very self-sufficient. And uh, we had breakfast together recently and he does everything with his feet and and I, I hope everyone in the world has access to this guy at some point because he's absolutely joyful and just positive and amazing. And he, he's able to rise above his, whatever his limitations are. Yeah. Just, he just does that because that's what we do. Right. And so I, I get so jazzed when I meet people that have overcome the guy, Kyle Maynard climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. A lot of people have done that. How many people have done it without arms or legs? He did it without arms or legs? Yeah. I don't know. So I, meet, I hear about yeah. people like this all the time. And I'm just so inspired. And I'm so, I just, I think, like when I went in to speak in, uh, after Sarajevo, I meet with the mayor. He says, uh, the governor, I'm sorry, the governor. And he says, be careful of the hometown hero syndrome. And I said, what's that? And he goes, yeah. high school quarterback throws the bomb at the end of the yeah. game, wins the state championship. He's carried off the field on everybody's shoulders, and he expects the rest of his life to be that to be way. be that way. Don't. And I was like, he goes, enjoy the fruits of your labor, but be prepared. Your life is going to change, and I want you to be ready for that. And I was like, thank you. The next thing I did was I went to the Paralympic banquet. And spoke. And spoke. And I walk into this thing. Olympic gold medalist, gold medalist from the United yeah. States of America. Yeah. And I see everybody there wearing the same medal I won, except they didn't have arms or legs or sight. And I'm like, I'm nothing. They're the heroes. They, they rose above something. And I just, I'm able-bodied. It, it's almost not fair. Yeah. But they're the heroes. I'm, and I think that's why... 
my metal lived in a, in a brown paper bag in my underwear drawer for eight years before I could finally get rid of it. And you gave it to the Olympic Museum? I gave it to the U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame Hall of Museum. Fame. What do you, as we, as we think about, you've got, your career has been interesting, to say the least, as an athlete and then an entrepreneur, because I, the, the um, stars on ice. Mm -hmm. um, and then now I know you're speaking and you're, have a podcast now. What are you doing now? Are you kind of semi-retired? No, I'm busier you, than I've ever been. My wife the other day <laughs> put me aside and goes, are you crazy? I go, yeah, I think I'm crazy. It's nuts. It's like I have a cancer foundation. Like I didn't choose cancer. It chose me. Yeah. Right. So, and it's all, everything I've learned is in the response. How do we respond to things? And how do we respond? And so in that, it's like, if I can change the way cancer is treated forever, then I'll know why I was born, right? My mom never had a chance, never had a chance. And they filled her full of everything they could think of for two years and yeah. she suffered and she died. But 20 years later, I'm diagnosed and two guys in Indiana figured it out. So I have a cancer foundation called Scott, uh, Scott Hamilton Cares Foundation. And it's um, the Cares, Scott Hamilton Cares. Scott Hamilton Cares Foundation. It's scottcares.org if anybody wants to check it out. But the CARES stands for the Cancer Alliance for Research, Education, Survivorship. And I did a, a ton of really cool things with the Cleveland Clinic. And then I launched as an independent foundation. And now all we do is we fund immunotherapy research. Um, there's, you know, our bodies created the cancer. Why can't we teach our bodies how to destroy it? Where are we in that? Really close. Yeah. Yeah, because we put our stake in the ground there nine years ago. And then two years after that, CAR-T came out, which is a T-cell therapy for, for um, lymphoma. And using that platform, they feel like they're going to be able to cure a lot of different cancers. So over the next yeah, half, we, five we, years, yeah, we did the thing at uh, Children's National Hospital in Washington, where we were kind of we funded initially 100% of their immunotherapy, and now they have a lot of funding coming in for immunotherapy. And we were talking to their head of uh, research, and he goes, "So how long have you been doing this?" And I told him, he goes, "How did you know? How did you know that immunotherapy was the next?" And I just said, "I'm smart." <laughs> no, I, I pay attention. I, I could see attention. where things were going. And I was meeting research scientists that had been working on this for a long time. And to me, it just felt logical. So for you, because this is Scott Hamilton cares is a, is a full, is a calling of your faith in yeah. your life. So that you will do that forever. So there's no real retirement for you. Well, I mean, or do you, you ever think of that we word? figure out, Cancer. Do you, do you think um, about the word of not working or you, you may just work until you can't work anymore? I don't know. I think a lot of it will depend on family. Because you've got, um, I want to hear about your kids too. You've got yeah, one MMA got, fighter. Yeah. Uh, 22 year old son. Let me see if I got a picture right here. I could show you. Um, you 22 see your year old kids. Son. This is us. So um, this is the Hamilton family. Yeah. So right there is um, Jean Paul. Yeah. He's 22 now. That's Clearly a biological son of yours. Very, very close. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. Could, uh, yeah I can't <laughs> deny him. That's Aiden. He's my first um, uh, born. Uh, and then um, there's Eveline, Eveline, my daughter, who's now 20. And then that's Max right there. He's now 15. About he's a, the one. He is a podcast now, Yeah, right? he's, he's on fire right now. But they're all busy. Um, Eveline's in, she's studying political science. I think she wants to go back to Haiti and fix it. Uh, Jean-Paul mm -hmm. is in the workplace and he really loves music. Um, my son Aiden is 
um, training MMA, wants to be an MMA fighter. Yeah. And then Max is going to probably end up being in, in uh, some form of ministry because he just loves the Lord and... Man, he just, he's on fire right now. He's and just, he's, he's only 15. He's 15. But he's speaking, he's preaching. But he's all over the place. He's going, doing a youth camp next weekend where he's doing three different sermons for kids his age. What about his podcast, The Name? Oh, it's called The Social Trap. Um, he realized a lot of people are getting stuck in um, social media, getting stuck in kind of like, um, life comparisons. Am I doing okay? Yeah. How do I fit in? How am I doing compared to the a world of a world of FOMO? <laughs> the world know, of FOMO. Like, What's well, FOMO? And it's it's just all artificial. Yeah. You know, nothing's real anymore. And so these kids are suffering. When you look at suicide rates now, it's it's awful. I mean, yeah. it's just it keeps and, getting worse and hopelessness. You know, and it's all because we're all comparing ourselves and and. You know, you look at sort of where our culture is today and and where we are, you know, politically divided. For what? I mean, we're all human beings. We all love each other. If we could just get to a point of just just stepping away from being labeled and just getting into the fact that we're human beings. It's like when, when the earthquake happened in Haiti, you know, they say estimated 250,000 people died in 30 minutes. Think of that. It's, that's unthinkable. My wife had to get there. Yeah. That's what we're designed to be, compassionate, sacrificial human beings. And if we could all just do that, my goodness, the world would change in a second. It would. And, and it's, but it's, it's, you know, we, with all these, so, like, I got a question. It was on, actually, on social media. Um, I went on just, I, every now and then when I'm bored, I'll go on Twitter and I'll look around and I go, if you could change the world in one way, what would you do? What would you do? Eliminate social media. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Amen to that. <laughs> and you can follow the Retire Sooner podcast at retiresoonerteam.com. No, but podcasts, yeah. it's, it's different than getting into all that stuff. It's not social media. And, and it's all, you know, when you look at like the social uh, dilemma and all the algorithms, and if you want a little of this, we'll give you a lot more. Yeah. And in that, it just, it puts more uh, fuel on the fire of whatever you're, searching or whatever you're passionate about, it'll just keep throwing it at you to the point where that becomes your existence. And in that, it's like, okay, come on, people, you know, we're human beings. And I just think, again, I lost my mom to cancer. I survived. What do I do? I really want to make sure everyone survives cancer, from cancer, right? I got a skating academy. I do it as a volunteer. Why do I do that? Because skating gave me an identity. It gave me a life. I want to give back. I want other people to experience the same joys I did. And then, you know, with family and with speaking, it's like sharing experiences allow people to offer, it gives them perspective. Yeah. You know, so yeah, um, you referred to, I think it was the TED talk I did on suffering. You know, I went on TED. Has anybody ever talked about suffering? Because I don't want to be accused of plagiarizing. There's not one talk on suffering. The one thing we all experience. We it's all like, experience wimps. it. You're yeah. all wimps. Yeah. You know, it's come on. We have to address these things. Mm -hmm. And how do we do it? We just, we try to empower people to rise above their circumstance, or at least, you know, with people that I know are facing terminal cancer. It's like, what do I do? It's like, Libby, every breath, every breath, just you pour into your family and whatever time you have left, you use it to do exactly what you want to do. When you speak, last question, when you, as we wrap, because we've got to, we got to run. We've been talking a long time. The, um, when you speak to audiences <laughs> yeah. as a speaker, 
What is your message that you want them to take away? What do you What do you like to speak about most? It's just it's you know basically I've fallen on the ice forty one thousand six hundred times minimum. Is that a real number? It's it's I did I kind of went through. Okay. Yeah, at minimum. It's a good estimate. It's forty one thousand six hundred. Forty one thousand six hundred times. Cool thing is, I got up forty one thousand six hundred times. Yeah. And when you get up forty one thousand six hundred times, that fall takes on a different identity. And I just really want everybody to understand that we all go through things in our lives that are hard, difficult, impossible to rise above, but it's that getting up, you know, it's the getting up that allows us to um, live our days, whatever, how many days we have to live them, you know, joyfully, productively, abundantly, um, and in community with other people. And it's the getting up. I mean, that's, and if you get up enough times, and if you get up enough times in impactful ways, I think it. People see that and they go, huh. "I can do that." You can, yeah, they can. I can, I can totally do that. So, you know, one of the first things we did with Cares was we set up a mentorship program for newly diagnosed patients. We put them with survivors to work as role models and life coaches, not medical stuff. It's just purely on, "I did it, so can you." Yeah, and you know that's kind of the message is, yeah. I got to experience a lot of really cool things and I got to experience some really not cool things. And to this day, I'm dealing with a lot of the non-cool things as part of my day-to-day life. Yeah. I'm still here. Yeah. And I don't know if I can make a difference in someone else's life or if I can, through my work in cancer, extend someone's life. You know, if, if I would have had the same trajectory as my mom, I never would have become a husband or a father. Mm-hmm. And now you have four kids. I have four kids. And um, we'll see. You know, maybe I'll live long enough to have grandchildren. That's the greatest blessing of all. God bless. Scott Hamilton, where do we find your stuff? Oh, social media. <laughs> no, it's scottcares.org is our website. Yeah. Kind of scottcares.org. You know, scottcares.org if you want to get involved in helping us. And we, you know, we have a 1984 campaign. If people sign up, they can donate $19.84 a month. And that really helps us. We're a small organization with Wait, was that the year you won something? That's the year I won something. <laughs> and then there's um uh, you know, uh, on on socials it's Scott Hamilton 84. And um Scott Hamilton 84, okay. Yeah. Scott Hamilton. Thank you. Thank you, man. That was fun. Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This information is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. There is no guaranteed offer that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. Stock prices fluctuate, sometimes rapidly and dramatically, due to factors affecting individual companies, particular industries or sectors, or general market conditions. For stocks paying dividends, dividends are not guaranteed and can increase, decrease, or be eliminated without notice. Fixed income securities 
involve interest rate, credit, inflation, and reinvestment risks and possible loss of principal. As interest rates rise, the value of fixed income securities falls. Past performance is not indicative of future results when considering any investment vehicle. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. Investment decisions should not be based solely on information contained here. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial planning considerations or decisions. The information contained here is strictly an opinion and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. The views and opinions expressed are for educational purposes only as of the date of production and may change without notice at any time based on numerous factors such as market and other conditions.